All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 389, Zero to Infinity. I'm John Molnix. Hi, I'm Jose Mariano Lopez Urdiales, the founder and CEO of Zero to Infinity. I'm so glad I was finally able to sit down with Jose to make this interview happen. I've been trying to get it on the books for a while now, but I've had a bunch going on in my personal life that's gotten in the way of actually being able to record. Later this week, I will have more audio from the 35th Space Symposium. I just haven't had a chance to edit everything just yet. For now, let's dive into the conversation I had with Zero to Infinity CEO. Jose, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a long time coming because of some scheduling issues on my end, so I appreciate you uh, taking the time today to chat with me. Sure. And this is, you know, this is pretty cool for me. Um, you're actually in Spain right now. And as I'm recording this end, I'm in Loveland, Colorado. And this is the type of thing that's made possible by a lot of technology that is a result of the space race. So it's cool that we can come together in this way. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, what, what got you into the aerospace industry? So I've, as far as back as I can remember, I've always been around aerospace missions of some sort because my father's an astronomer and I would be exposed to sounding rocket launches, hear about high altitude balloon flights, or talk about things that were being seen in telescopes or in inter- interplanetary probes. So being exposed to the engineering, what was possible, the whys and the... And, and the and, and uh, the reasons why these things were going on uh, made me very interested in, in the sector. So then I pursued a normal career, tried to to expand access to space through, through working at more standard entities uh, where, where I learned a lot. But, but I, I could see that working in these places such as the European Space Agency or working on the Ariane 5 launcher here in Europe, um, the incentives were not really there for this uh, radical expansion of space access that I'm passionate about. So I decided to start my own company uh, and step, step by step uh, make it happen. Well, and you know, it's definitely radical in terms of what the design is. And there's a couple different products that your company has um, from balloons to um, a rocket that basically ascends to the edge of the atmosphere called Blue Star. How did these designs come about? Like what made you want to pursue this type of design over a traditional rocket? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So Blue Star is a solution to send small payloads into low Earth orbit. So this is not to make a city on Mars or things like that. It's not optimized for that, but it's optimized for things that weigh like 100 kilograms and are flying in low Earth orbit. And there is a huge demand for this. And, and where it's coming from is really discussions with my father back in the days when he was involved in a mission that actually never happened to bring back samples from Venus. You see, Venus is a giant planet 
well, it's a giant planet. It's a large planet similar to the Earth. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's, it's big in size, similar to slightly smaller than the Earth, but it has a thick atmosphere. So when the, the scientists and the engineers were looking at how to send stuff back from Venus, from Venus to the Earth, they saw that a balloon with a rocket could work hmm. because you don't have a Kennedy Space Center waiting for you in <laughs> Venus. Definitely you don't, not. You can't really invest in that. The atmosphere is also very thick, and you only want you only want to bring some some grams or some kilograms max of of samples uh, back to Earth if you're doing such a mission. So the way to do that was with a balloon. So I thought, well, would that work on Earth? Then I figured out that. Yeah, it has been done actually before NASA was was formed in the United States. There was a program flying rockets from balloons and flying really high up into space. And then I looked at the problem and saw that the reasons why this had not really panned out and had not become the standard way were not. Those reasons made sense in the fifties. That don't make sense now. So you see, this is really really optimal for for small payloads. But back then you needed several tons. You needed uh, hundreds of kilograms or really big masses to do anything. Uh, now with microelectronics, hey, with the small payloads, you can do a lot. So this really comes back making sense. Um, but, but you're right, the design is different from the usual designs. A lot of people have looked at, well, a handful of people have looked at designing rockets to be fired from balloons, but typically they just take the normal rocket and put it under the balloon. And that doesn't get you the, the juice of it, the benefit. Um, if, you, if you redesign the rocket from fundamentals, from, visit, from physics, and look at the loads that it's going to face, look at the efficiency of the engines, the diameters of the nozzles, all the parameters, you end up having your optimum really far away from the optimum of launching from the ground. When you're launching from the ground, you have to be very, very thin and slender. Mm -hmm. It's a requirement because of the atmosphere. When you are above most of the atmosphere, you no longer have to be like that. So it ends up that your rocket can be have much lighter tanks because they can have a different, more compact shape. So you can have more efficient and lower cost to develop engines. So there's a lot of things to change that end up benefiting um, the customer and, and the, the economics of the operation from launching at high altitude. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, going back to the 50s, there's been so many advances in manufacturing from the 1950s to today that what you're what you guys are doing really you know from a manufacturing standpoint wouldn't have been possible 50 years ago that's right uh you can 3d print the entire engines right now at low cost you can also not just manufacturing but also computer modeling back then you launch a balloon and you didn't really know where it was gonna end up right now you launch a balloon you can predict immediately the trajectory with great efficiency, um, with any accuracy that, that you want. And, and we've seen this with um, this very successful program from Google, providing communications through balloons, through high altitude balloons called Google Loon, and they can track and predict the trajectory for, for several days or even weeks of their balloons. So it's a solved problem now. So you can use the, the buoyancy of the balloon to... <laughs> Hey, I think there was a notification that oh, just no worries. screwed over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me answer that again. No it was my phone that 
that I forgot to put on mute. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. It's okay. So, so yeah, manufacturing now lets you use materials that were like science fiction back in the fifties, like carbon fiber. You can also 3d print engines in one go if they're simple, like the ones we use. Um, also with computer modeling and the data that we have about the atmosphere, you can predict the trajectories of the balloons with any sort of accuracy desired. So it, it's really uh, a great combination of, it makes sense now to launch these small payloads and it's really doable to, to make the most of this way, different way of launching. The, the main reason why this didn't really develop again is, is that you wanted a system that could put a nuclear warhead on the other side of the world within 15 minutes. And the balloon ride up just takes an hour. <laughs> So you're toast yeah. by the time you're firing your rocket. So, of course, that wasn't that exciting for the Soviets or the U.S. DOD. Mm -hmm. And it was put on the drawer. But if you don't want to win, um, you know, a nuclear war, which is by definition unwinnable, if you just want to offer a service to send small satellites into orbit for profit, well, then it makes a lot of sense. And that's one of the things I find so exciting about the industry is, you know, companies like yours, um, there's other small sat launchers that are that are coming into the marketplace now. It's really there's, you know, you're, you're pursuing something that's going to better humanity, but there's also some economics behind it that it makes sense from a business case. And I, I find that interplay between you know, doing a public good and making some profit to be really cool. So I'm excited that your company is pursuing that. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about uh, Blue Star testing. There was a test flight back in 2017, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And and what did you learn? What did you learn from that test flight? So we learned how to ask for permission to fire a rocket from a balloon in European airspace. Okay. We learned how to launch, well, we practiced because we already knew how to do this, but we practiced how to launch uh, a, a balloon from the sea, from a specific location by putting the ship where the balloon takes off from exactly at the same speed as the wind so that there is zero relative velocity between the balloon and the ship, and uh, sorry, the balloon and the, and the, and the wind. Interesting. Um, and and that, that's really one of the key enabling technologies that, that Blue Star needs uh, to work. So we also tested a bunch of um, telemetry and avionics units that were flown on this small prototype. This was a very, very simple rocket. It wasn't nearly as complicated as Blue Star will be, but it enabled us to, to test uh, some of these uh, electronics that need to fly on the system uh, on, on, on future prototypes. Okay. So those were the things that we got. We also got a really nice video that people can watch. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be linking to that in the show notes. It's pretty cool. Um, so Blue Star itself is a three-stage rocket then. That's that's pretty cool for how small of a vehicle it is. Can you talk about that design? Yeah, I, I can see that there is a lot of uh, love for two-stage launchers in part because SpaceX has shown the world how much you can do with a two-stage launcher with this extremely successful Falcon 9 family. Mm -hmm. However, the smaller you are 
in terms of massive payload, the higher number of stages you end up needing, otherwise uh, your payload becomes uh, like a rounding error of the mass of the second stage. And you don't want that, believe me. You don't want to build a system and then in the end have negative payload because you, it's within the margin of error. So by having a three-stage system, you make sure that your payload uh, is non-zero <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's what's meant to be. And there's been trials, you know, when, when you look at another super successful company, Rocket Lab, Mm-hmm. They being adamant that they were going to stage to stage to stage, and in the end, if you look at the fine print, they ended up adding a third stage uh, because it's just really hard to do uh, a micro launcher uh, with two stages and, and get it right from the get go. So the three stages give you a lot of flexibility and confidence in the, in the fact that you are going to have the payload that you're claiming. Sure, and you know it's it's one of those things that. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned SpaceX because th- their success, I think, has been generally good for the rest of the industry because it's it's bringing attention to companies like yours, to companies like Rocket Lab that are doing things that are you know not traditional launch you know not traditional um, launch services. So it's it's really cool to see um, the zero to infinity, the blue star, and um, you know. Speaking of seeing it, when when do you think we could expect to see a uh, test flight for Blue Star? So we we would like to do several test flights of parts of the system, such as flying the third stage on its own. Okay. We have a, a roadmap of test flights that include sometime early next year to fly the upper stage, the third stage of, of Blue Star, the one that just has one engine taking it up to altitude on a balloon and, and firing it up. Of course, that's not going to reach orbit, but it's going to de-risk a lot of the technologies for the whole Blue Star system, which would be tested on the on the, on the following year. Um, we also use every flight that we do as part of Elevate, which is our activity of flying high-altitude balloons, and that's it, just reaching between 20 and 40 kilometers mm-hmm. to mature some of the systems that we'll fly later on, on Blue Star and on Bloon as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bloon too, because that was the next thing I wanted to talk about. This is a really remarkable design in terms of how it takes people to space. What's behind this? I mean, you, you basically have the, the tagline for this is the day trip of a lifetime. What, what made you want to create the uh, balloon plat- platform? So uh, this started back in the year 2000. I was going to go to the International Space University uh, summer session program. That's how it was called. This is a two-month intensive course on, on space systems. It's a uh-huh. great great opportunity if you, some of the listeners want to learn about space. Uh, it's a very intercultural, interdisciplinary study. So I was, I was 24 years old back then, and, and I read that I had to sign up to a, either a program working on El Nino, you know, the phenomenon, the meteorological phenomenon, or okay. space tourism. So I thought, oh, space tourism sounds like much more fun. <laughs> so, so I started thinking and, and was, again, I was talking to my dad and we were like, okay, we've met a few astronauts. What do they talk about? Why, why would somebody want to go to space? Is it to learn Russian? Is it to, you know, 
very, yeah. be very afraid on the day of launch, you know, probably not. Is it to feel five times your own weight? Probably not. It's to look out the window, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what they talk about. It's looking out the window, how the earth is beautiful, how you don't see borders and all this. So we studied how the earth looks blue and the sky is black day and night. So I thought, well, what are the physics behind? What altitude do you need to be at to see this? And then we saw, you don't need to be that high. It's totally unrelated to being in orbit or not. Actually, much lower than orbit is feasible. So, so I wrote a paper in 2002 about space tourism explaining, well, if this ever develops, balloons can offer the same visual experience at a much lower cost, much lower risk, etc. Yeah. And also no environmental impact compared to flying over a tiny giant column of black smoke. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of advantages. So then, that, but that was just papers uh, explaining the idea. And then in 2009, when I saw that Virgin Galactic had secured funding, for the projects from the United Arab Emirates, I thought, well, hey, maybe you can you can get to fund Bloom as well. Uh, this idea, so so we've flown we've flown a half scale prototype of the system. So this well, this cannot yet take people, but it's half the size. It's about two meters of diameter. Okay, the large one will be slightly bigger than four meters. And it had the life support system, had windows, temperature control, and all this. So it's um, a lot of the, I mean, all of the technologies have been proven. Uh, and it's just a much, much more rational way than offering a few minutes of view yeah. uh, and flying higher. Because really, the human eye, once the sky is black, it's black. Okay, it's not going to get blacker. <laughs> so why are you going higher and just uh, making sure that you come back supersonic on the way down and there's shockwaves and all these things that just makes it more complicated. You, you just float over the atmosphere is, is ideal for the visual experience. So I think companies like ourselves and Worldview in the United States or Quanchi in China that are taking up these ideas that are, uh, are going to be the more successful platforms in the early days of, of space tourism. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's two hours of being at altitude and being able to experience those views versus five to ten minutes. So, absolutely, <clears throat> yes. So, so, yeah. So, so Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and the rest, uh, they they yeah, they offer a niche for those that want the combination of zero gravity and high altitude. Yes, you get that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as somebody that has experienced over half an hour of microgravity in my life, I've done several flights and it's a lot of fun. It's decoupled. Okay. If you want to do microgravity, you go, you grab a plane, you mm -hmm. go on a plane. You don't need to put yourself at risk on a rocket. It's a, it's no need. And you can do, spend much longer time when you sum up all the parabolas on an airplane for a tiny fraction of the cost. So, Really, it's because of the view, and as you said, the view is much longer on, on something like Bloom. Well, and you can you can launch pretty much anywhere with Bloom. Is that right? Bloom can take off wherever there is no wind, so you need to look at maps of wind. And but yeah, you can if you have a crane and you have a runway and there is no wind, you can launch. Okay. 
so that you're not limited to like an equatorial region or anything anything like that you can go you could launch from somewhere in europe somewhere from america you're, you're not limited yes. to a certain geographic location that's cool that's right and this is true for all our applications and and blue star what's very cool about it is that you know the going back to the launch uh, satellite launch system mm-hmm. uh since if you have a, a platform that is floating or a boat that can match the speed of the wind in the sea you're good to go so so you can launch from any location and this is really good in terms of insurance as well because you're far away from people and property. The rocket only gets ignited at tens of kilometers away from anybody and makes, uh, you know, in the case of a malfunction and you're losing the, the rocket, which is inevitable, it has happened to every large companies. Yeah, yeah it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. You, but, but Blue Star is extremely resilient to that eventuality because if it happens, so then there's some fireworks in the sea and you can launch on the next day. There, there's no launch pad to to re, re, retrofit or fix. There is no Disneyland or Disney World around you. Yeah. There's nothing. You're in the sea. And this gives you also a lot of freedom for scheduling trajectories, launch windows and such because you're not on a fixed spot. So there's a lot of pluses of doing it this way. Well, you know, and I'm excited just because I think the more ways we can get scientific payloads into orbit, the more ways we can get, you know, different people to have the ability to experience what it's like to send a payload into space, to have that, you know, capability for school, to have it for, you know, a company. I think it's it's a great mission to be able to lower that cost of getting to orbit. Yeah, that's we, we, we want to make your dream happen, uh, whatever that dream may be. Maybe some people's dream is to to have their high school learn about these things and get ready for the world of tomorrow. For some other people, the dream might be to get married, looking at, at the sun coming out, you know, from the horizon, from space. Uh, there's different people's different different dreams for different people, and so we, we want to facilitate those those dreams. Uh, we're pretty agnostic on whatever that dream might be. Some are more business oriented, some are more scientific, some are more personal. They all want to go, and we're going to make it easy for them. That's that's really a cool goal. You know, one thing I, I want to be able to start asking people as I'm starting season three of the podcast here is what you're most excited about for spaceflight in the next 10 years? So I'm, I'm really excited about, I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be um, a lot of influential people that will have seen the Earth from outside. And that is going to have a very interesting effect on the choices that they make. Right now, people that are excited about space, we are a minority. Okay, there are some very influential people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but they're still seen as a rarity and a minority. But the moment that you have hundreds of influential people, wealthy or famous or you know, whatever, uh, flying and seeing this and sharing it with people that they meet at different events and in their families. And I think that's going to have a very positive effect on the world and how we become more conscious of the fact that we are all on the same spaceship through 
through, through space, you know, and we have to care for it and care for each other. So I think that's going to transcend the economic value that, that is being created by these new space companies. Interesting. You know, and it's, it's something that I, I agree. It's, there's a lot of things that once you go into space and you look back, it's just, it's one of those alter, you know, life altering moments where you realize that, yeah, we are all human. You know, there's, there's some differences in opinion, differences in language, but at the end of the day, we're all, like you said, we're all flying through space on the same spaceship. So <laughs> better treat each other good. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jose, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to having you on in the future uh, with the uh, first successful Blue Star launch. So hopefully I can get back with you uh, here in the next couple of years. That'd be great. Thanks. Take care. I do have a call number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment now on the podcast. Just call 720-772-7988 and leave a message. As always, links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a review. iTunes reviews help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.